0: Okay, what's the date today? It's uh, Thursday, the 14th of April, 2011. And before we begin, I have an announcement to make. Um, May the 7th, there's going to be a B-Day. The B-Day, and I'm sorry ladies, this is just for the men. The B-Day stands for Bible Teaching Barbecue and Bullets. Just just the kind of day that doctrinal men usually like. It's going to be at Kevin Perkins' farm. Uh, he lives in the country somewhere, Where north of Austin? Okay, well, anyway. Okay. Um, I'm going to leave this out for you to, to read. It's got the information as to uh what, you're, what we're go- going to be doing. Um, Pastor Bob asked me today if I would uh, speak at this me- gathering. He will uh, uh, say a little bit. and pa- There's going to be at least three pastors there, Pastor Bob, Pastor Cliff, and me. And there's going to be barbecue. And they say if you have a um, uh, weapon, uh, pistol, rifle, whatever to bring it, and it's not just going to go out there and start blasting. He's got all the rules here of how it's going to work. And he says, even if you don't have a gun, just bring the ammunition and they'll furnish the gun. He says, bring your uh, ear protection and things like that. Uh, barbecue and Bible teaching, that's what it's going to be about. And here's a sign-up sheet right here that I'm going to put in the ba- in the back. And... He needs to get a take on how many are coming as soon as as we can, you know, within a week maybe. And are you able to carpool? Anyway, all that information is going to be here, and I hope that the men of this church will take advantage of that. And those that aren't here, you might pass that along so we can have several people to uh, join the group. I think it's going to be fun. So I think that's all I have to say about that for right now. Yes. Uh, No. We'll. If we if we need to, we just write them on the back. If we have more than that. Okay. Let's prepare ourselves this evening for our our study of the Word of God. You know our standard operating procedure. Have a few moments of silent prayer and rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for giving us this day that we can still live in a time of somewhat normal circumstances. We see the news, we hear things that are going on around the world, and all of the catastrophes and all the danger around, and yet we are very stable and secure because we are on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Christ and. We recognize just how important that is, so we pray that you will help us this very evening to concentrate on your Word so that we'll have power in our life, not just knowledge, but power of combining faith with your Word and executing your plan. So we pray that you will help us this evening, for we pray it in Christ's name, Amen. I'm always somewhat amazed. I don't know if that's the right word, amazed, but it just, everywhere you look, there are people who are espousing false doctrines. They're everywhere. In fact, it's very rare to find anyone that is doctrinally sound. It seems like there's two extremes. Either you have the people that, that, that don't know anything and they don't care, that don't bother them with anything that pertains to God, and then you have the other ones that are into God, so to speak, but they're off on a tangent, and they are heretical and don't know it. It seems like more and more I see this happening everywhere I turn. In the recent uh, Berean Call issue, which is for April 2011, there's a pastor named Ron Bell, he's 40 years old, and he teaches in Granville, Michigan, at a church called Mars Hill Church, 10,000 members. He reexamines Christianity's traditional understanding of life, salvation, and what happens after we die. He says, I just have a paragraph here, he says, uh, and I'm quoting here, For too many people, what they've been told is the good news, what is the good news is actually an ugly truth. They hear that God is full of grace and unconditional love, a God of endless second chances, infinitely patient. But then they hear that God's grace, love, and patience patience expires at death. Too late, they're told. You had your chance. That schizophrenic idea of God is simply untenable, Bell says. It's psychologically unbearable. No psyche can handle that, he said. It's devastating. It's also toxic and a lie. The good news, Bell insists, is better than that. If we have freedom to choose these things now that Jesus came to offer us and show us, then I assume that when you die you can continue to choose these realities because love cannot co-opt with the human heart, the human heart's ability to decide. Bell said, but after you die we are firmly in the realm of speculation. So what he's saying is after you die, you still have a chance to use your volition to, he doesn't expound on it, but you would think, to, he says, to be able to benefit from the things that Jesus has offered us. Well, he has offered us eternal life and God's own righteousness and all these wonderful things. He, he, what he's saying is you have a second chance after you die. The Brian calls response says indeed Rob Bell is making a fatal assumption that one may choose reality after life on earth. On this matter God's word leaves no room for speculation. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. That's Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27. Tragically Bell's ability to choose will lead all to their place of <coughs> will lead all who place their hope and trust in this deception to their second death. And then Proverbs 14, 12 is given. So you have uh, 12,000 people that are told that it really doesn't matter on earth what happens with regards to your choices regarding Jesus Christ because after you die, we have a God that is so loving that you still have another chance. Of course, that isn't what the Bible says. And another thing that I've, I've noticed is that there's a lot about people waiting for Jesus Christ to return. At, at least there is a distinction between those who are waiting and those who are not. I think maybe the reason that I've seen this in, in, this, in this magazine as well as so many others, it's like when you look for a new car. And you find one that you're thinking about and then you notice is as you're going down the road you start seeing them. Oh, there's one over there. Oh, yeah, there's a, there's a green one. Oh, yeah, over here, there's a brown one over there. And you would never notice them apart from already being thinking about it. And maybe that's why I'm noticing all this about uh, the return of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's always been there, but we have been focusing on that. So it seems like everywhere I turn there are articles and there's things that has to do with that. In the same Berean call, Dave Hunt in 1988 wrote an excerpt called Whatever Happened to Heaven? And he's talking about how people get so enmeshed in their daily lives. There's so many details. And we live in a fast-paced world. And if you have a computer, oh, God bless you, uh, you have more stress in your life. And if you have a TV and a computer, then it's a double whammy. Uh, I think back probably not that long ago, maybe 150 years ago, maybe just 100 years ago, people didn't have information from all over the world. They didn't know what was going on outside their own little burg, outside of their little hamlet. Maybe they go to the county seat every once in a while, but they didn't know what was going on on the other side of the world. And today we get up-to-the-minute news reports, video, everything else right in our face every day. I think for a lot of people, that is a stress factor that they didn't have to deal with. Of course, they did have stress factors that we don't, uh, whether the Indians were going to (laughs) attack, whether they were going to run out of water, uh, plagues, all kind of things. So I guess we all have our cross to bear. But anyway, what... Dave is doing in this article, it's just one page long, and I'm not going to read it. I'm trying to uh, summarize it for you. He's just saying that people aren't thinking about heaven anymore or very little. Uh, One thing he points out is that there are certain groups of people who are really turning the tide and maybe growing, there there might be a dilemma growing that will be controversial over the people who really don't even, it's not a matter of when is the rapture going to happen. They don't even think it's going to happen. There are people who are classified. Here's three groups that he names. They're known as the Reconstructionists, Kingdom Now Dominionists, and the Coalition on Revival, called COR, C-O-R. These people are trying to fulfill what's known as the Great Commission found in the last chapter of Matthew, go forth and preach the gospel to all creatures. But they've taken it beyond that into now they are trying to focus all their attention on getting the world Christianized. And we as believers are not to Christianize the world because it's futile. You're not going to be able to Christianize the devil's world. That is not our mission. I guess I'll just I'll just read one paragraph here. Maybe uh, it might bring something to light. He says, All three of these groups that I just named either reject the belief that Christ will one day take his church out of this world and home to heaven or relegate it to a position of such minor importance that it has no practical role in today's Christianity. In fact, there is an increasing antagonism against eagerly watching and waiting for Christ's return, which surely was the attitude of the early church. A backlash has developed against the rapture because these people that I named, these are just a few of the groups that believe this, uh, their focus and their hope isn't on, on Christ returning. Quite the contrary. Their focus is on Christianizing the world. He says, within the evangelical church today the numbers are dwindling of those who retain in meaningful form the hope of the imminent return of Christ to take them to the mansions of his Father's house before the whole world explodes in the great tribulation, judgment, uh, and Armageddon. Do I hear something? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, in contrast, the numbers are growing rapidly of those who view such a hope as the negative product of a defeatist theology. A theology that undermines the victory they believe that they can uh, win with the church if Christians would only catch the vision of taking over the world for Christ and unite it to fulfill it. The tension is building to a climax between individuals who long to leave this earth for heaven in the rapture and other equally sincere people who believe it is our duty to Christianize society and, and that until this has been accomplished, our Lord cannot return. What is is that backwards. For many others, perhaps the majority, the seeming, seeming contradictions present a confusing dilemma. And that's the problem sometimes is when you start talking about the rapture, the timing of the rapture, get into details, and then you, they hear this tidbit from you, and then they are talking to someone who are amillennialists, who don't even believe that there's going to be a millennium. They don't believe in a rapture. And there's, you have to understand, and I think you would all agree, that eschatology is not for the weak in doctrine. It's important. But so many people just throw up their hands. They think, well, I, I'll, I'll never understand it. Heaven remains the place that everyone hopes to reach someday, but which almost no one wants to be taken right now. In other words, everybody wants to go to heaven, but not today. And he says, What is wrong, if anything, with such an attitude, and what are its consequences? And he says, Whatever happened to heaven? In other words, people are not heavenly minded anymore. Uh, Jesus Christ, certainly, when he, in John 14, 1 through 16, uh, three said that he was going away and that he, if he went away he would come back and that he would take them to the the his father's house in many mansions and they were that revolutionized everything for them this was the focal point of the first century church because no religion no nobody ever said there's never been a religion that said that the one who they worship has already died. They've gone to heaven and they're coming back. To my knowledge, I don't know of anyone that has done that with, with promises and covenants and so forth. So anyway, there's a lot in the news. There's a lot to grapple with. But we're going to stick to our knitting and continue in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. This is where we, we covered some of this Tuesday night, but I'm starting here so you can see the verse. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in truth. And it was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's so much there. That last phrase, and we're not to verse 14 yet, but we have a purpose clause that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That just amazes me that the God of the universe is interested in us to begin with. That he loves us with a love that we can't even comprehend is amazing. But the fact that he is willing and has done things necessary for us to share the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ it just blows my doors off. Now that's a 60's expression. You maybe heard me say it before, but we said, when you were in school, did they ever use an expression that caught, and even the rest of your life, when something happens, that that expression comes to mind? Of course, this is the 60s were the the years of the muscle cars, and there was drag racing, and the idea was if somebody had such a powerful car, it was so awesome, that it would go by you so fast, it would just blow your doors off. That was the idea. It, it was something that was just uh, hard to imagine. It was so, so different. And that's what it means. So, We've already gone over the fact that <coughs> we should always give thanks for you. And that is that we should be giving thanks to God for each other. We are the body of Christ. We are the royal family of God. Now there's a universal church. There's a universal family, but we don't know who all those people are. We will someday, we'll meet them in heaven, but for right now, the people that we are closest to are our church family, or at least it should be that way. And many times, if not most times, even closer than blood kin, because there is a a esprit de corps, a camaraderie, there is a bond between believers, especially those who are hungry for truth, that... Is not like anything else. Probably every one of you know what I'm talking about. There are people in your family that you would like to be closer to, but there's a barrier. And the barrier is that they just don't care anything about God and His Word. They may even be saved. But you can only go so far in a relationship with someone who just has a cavalier, take-it-or-leave-it attitude towards God and His Word. It's just That's just the nature of it. But you can come into contact with a believer who likes to talk about the Bible, who likes to talk about Jesus Christ, who is thankful for all the blessings and loves to talk about this, and nearly instantly you have a rapport with them. You have that that bond. And we should give thanks for this because it might not always be so. There may be times when we may be isolated. There may be things that occur in in the future that we can't even... We can't even imagine at this point where we won't have a, the body of Christ, the family, the local church family meeting together, and that, that relationship, that give and take, that concern, that love, that sharing is something that we most of the time take for granted, but Paul didn't. He said many times, I showed you some verses last time, where he was thanking the Lord for our the believers, the positive believers. You could even put it this way. It would be thankful for believers who are part of the pivot. Now, for some, you may not know what the pivot is, but it was a term coined by Colonel R.B. Thiem, the pastor of Baraka Church. And he said, he called it the pivot because everything with regards to a nation and a people hinges. It pivots with regards to the people who are positive towards God's Word. Because a nation is either going to be blessed or cursed based on the people's attitude towards God and His Word. And God will take and He can twist or turn. He can open or close doors. Everything pivots with regards to blessing or cursing according to those who are positive towards God. Now, when you have a a nation that has a large number of people in the pivot that are mature believers who are really hungry for God's Word, then that nation is going to be blessed. If the nation has very few believers that are hungry for God's Word, that, that nation is going to be cursed. So this, I'm giving you another reason, another level maybe, as to why we should be thankful for our fellow believers. Especially those who are positive, because this is how a nation is going to be blessed or cursed, whether it's going to survive or whether it's going to be uh, going to the dustbin of history. Because God has chosen you from the beginning. We went into the election doctrines of uh, election not that long ago. I mean, we went into it for uh, months, concentrating on this issue so that you won't be afraid of it. You understand that God elects, chooses, predestines certain people that are going to be conformed to the image of His Son. But it's not arbitrary. It's all based on His foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is a subcategory of God's omniscience. Omniscience means that God knows everything. And if you want to (coughs) sit on a sunny day and look up at the clouds and contemplate something? Contemplate that. I've done it before. I don't know if you have. (coughs) Excuse me. I've set out and I thought, okay, God knows everything. Alright, here's my yard right here. If I thought, God, how many blades of grass are in this yard? Could he just say, well, so many million or billion or whatever it was? How many ants are in here? How many uh, bumblebees? How many whatever? What do you think? Do you think he knows that? Well, if he knows everything, he knows that. The Bible says that he knows how many hairs you have on your head. <coughs> and we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> now, <coughs> excuse me. Foreknowledge is a subcategory of that. Now, foreknowledge has to do with what is entered into the divine decrees. Now we've we've gone into the divine decrees before. Does this ring a bell? Are you up to speed on this? In eternity past, there was <coughs> a powwow, there was a meeting. Excuse me. <coughs> and the Godhead got together and decided, since they had an innumerable number of options as to what they could do, they decide, because in their omniscience, they could have, had, I mean, a gazillion possibilities as to what they were going to do with their time and their power and all this. And so they decided, okay, this is what we're going to do. And, of course, what they decided to do has to be what? Absolutely perfect. It's the best plan that could ever have come. And so they decided that uh, they were going to create the heavens and the earth and the angels and man and all these things. But one of the things that was decided, and it had, this carries us back to our verse right here, because you see it up here, for God has chosen you from the beginning. He chose you. He elected you. He called you. He foreordained you. He predestined you based on His foreknowledge of knowing what was in the divine decrees. Now, the divine decrees is separating all the things that could happen from what will actually happen, all the potential from the reality. Because we're dealing with God that time is of no essence. God isn't even in time. And so he knows everything from, well, there's never a time when he didn't know everything. And so he says this, when he made the divine decrees, he said this is what's going to happen. All these things could happen, but this is going to happen. I know it's going to happen because I far know it. I know it ahead of time. And God knows, or he knew ahead of time, that there would be a day that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, you are elected and chosen based on that. Another feature of this is that you are in Christ. Christ was elected. Christ was chosen. Christ is the high priest. We have a priesthood because we are intimately united with Jesus Christ because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what happened at at, that. Salvation. We were permanently identified with Jesus Christ. So we were elected based on that. It wasn't arbitrary. God didn't say in the, in the divine decrees, well, let's see. I think we are going to have, uh, let's say, throughout human history, God knows that there's going to be, I don't know, let's say, 100 billion people. I'm just throwing, I don't know what the figure would be, how many people that will be created from Adam to the end, but there is a certain defined number. And if God said, okay, we're going to have 100 billion people, we're going to create 100 billion people, and out of that, I think that we'll choose 5% that we will elect, that we will choose to salvation, that we will choose that Christ will die for those who, but he won't die for the rest. See, that's the perversion of these, of these doctrines that I'm talking about. How do we know that? Because the, doc, the, the doctrine of unlimited atonement I was going over that with the kids yesterday. And these are all doctrines that are important. Are you up to speed or are all these things? Can you talk intelligently to someone about these things? Well,. These all are connected to what we're looking at here because God has chosen you from the beginning. Not that you're so special or I'm so special. It's that He has given the free gift of grace. By His grace, He's given the free gift of salvation to those who are going to believe in His Son. And He foreknow those, foreknew those who were going to do that, and those are the ones that are elected. Nowhere in the Bible, anywhere, is elected election Directed towards unbelievers, it's just not there. So you, 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 someone says, "Okay, if God elects and chooses believers to go to hell, then He must choose and elect unbelievers to go to—I mean, to go to heaven. He must choose unbelievers to go to hell." Well, that's called the Hegelian theory—that if there's a thesis, there has to be an antithesis—and it's just not the case. It's just not there. So no one can say that. Anyone goes to hell because God chose them to go to hell. They go to hell because they reject Jesus Christ. And the free gift of salvation is given only to those who accept that free gift. God far knew it, so in eternity past, He elected you. The whole thing about election isn't about God's sovereignty, it's about His omniscience. God wants us to know how much He knows and when He knew it. And he knows everything, and there's never a time when he didn't know everything. Doesn't that give you pause? That in eternity past, God elected you based on you accepting the free gift of salvation? It does mean. Well, I, I'm, see, here I am. I said I wasn't going to go into this, but I'm just kind of hitting the high spots to kind of tie it together so this will be meaningful to us. Everything that I see in the Bible, the deeper I go, the more appreciation I have of who God is. The more doctrine you have, the more you have the capacity to appreciate Him. That He did this for us before the universe ever was created. Before He did anything, He already chose you. He knew you in eternity past. In fact, there was never a time when He didn't know you. And there was never a time that you were not elected. And people think, well, you can lose your salvation. It just doesn't jive. Okay, we went over that. Christ was elected in turned to pass according to Isaiah 42.1. Election for the believer means to share the election of Christ and the destiny of Christ. Everything is about Christ. That's one reason when you mention Christ's name, when you say Jesus Christ around people, things happen. You can talk about God all day long. They'll even let you mention God in school. One of the, one of the people that this church uh, has had here pers- uh, uh, here speaking that goes from uh, school to school. That is a, a tremendous speaker. One time went to a went to a school and. they told him that you can mention anybody's name. You can talk about Stalin, Hitler, Mao Zedong. Uh, You can talk about sex. You can talk about anything you want to But what you cannot do is mention Jesus Christ's name. Of course, this is what it was all about. I mean, this is why why he was there, to inform the, the young people about the gospel. So what he did was turn it around on him, Because he said, now I'm here and I'm going to talk about someone that I am forbidden to mention his name. And I will not mention his name. But some people associate a cross with with this person. And he went on and he went the whole thing he went through and never mentioned his name and you know what it did? It just accentuated it. It emphasized it more than if he had mentioned his name because everybody knew who he was talking about But never mentioned his name. So you talk about Jesus Christ, you mention that name, and there are uh, sparks fly sometimes. Okay, so the point is we were chosen by God from the beginning, and then it says here for salvation. For salvation. Now, is this talking about eternal salvation, or is it talking about temporal deliverance? And I'm of the mindset here that it could be either one. I think it is more leaning towards the temporal deliverance. You know what I'm talking about, temporal deliverance. It's just talking about being saved from something or someone or something here on earth. And I think that's what it's... But you can't say that's the only thing that it is referring to because certainly God elected us, and that's what I've been talking about a while ago, from eternity past that we will be His children based on our acceptance of His free gift of salvation. So it can mean either either one, but um, I think it's leaning more towards the experiential temporal deliverance because of what we see next through sanctification by the Spirit. I was talking to someone one time, and I'll get to you in just a second. <coughs> and they said, oh, no, every time you see salvation in the Bible... It has to do with eternal salvation, and I just happen to remember. I think it's in First Timothy. I looked it up, but I didn't write it down. I think it's First Timothy one five, or don't I don't. It's in First Timothy. Anyway, the quote is that it's talking about women and how they are obscure for the most part, but they will be saved through childbearing. And I asked that person, does that mean that only women who have babies are going to heaven? You just said every time your person is saved. Uh, I mean, every time you see the word saved or salvation in, in the Bible, it's talking about going to heaven. You see, if you just know a little bit about that, and he said, well, maybe I need to rethink that or something like that. <coughs> so I'm not going to linger here over this other than the fact that it can be one of two things. Y'all all all with that? I mean, you should be up to speed on that. That most of the time in the Bible, it's not talking about eternal salvation, even in the New Testament. Because the the epistles of the New Testament are written to who? Believers. And believers don't need to be re-evangelized in every letter about evangelism because they're already saved. But they do need to be saved from the world, the flesh, and the devil. They do need to be delivered from themselves and their own old sin nature, what to do, how to stay on track. So that's what this is uh, mainly about. Now, Michael, you had something. I changed that. Yeah, I didn't go on this one. No, that's all right. I'm glad... (laughs) Uh, where, where do I have it here? Uh, right here, yeah. It should be uh, uh, sigma uh, omega instead of sigma iota. Yeah. I, I, I changed that. I, see, well, I have three or four of these different things, and it's hard when I make a change to make it get all the way across. But I appreciate you pointing that out because I want it to be accurate. Okay. Uh, Through sanctification by the Spirit. Now, probably the the rest of the time that we're going to be here, we're going to be looking at this sanctification because this is huge. You cannot understand the New Testament apart from understanding that there is a positional or lawful sanctification. It's our standing before God. It's not experiential. And then there is the experiential sanctification. And if you don't know the difference between the two, it, essentially this is talking about positional sanctification has to do with those things for the most part that guarantee our eternal salvation and things that happen at the point of salvation. Not entirely, but for the most part. Experiential sanctification doesn't have anything to do with going to heaven or making it to heaven. It has everything to do with what you're going to be like at uh, once you get to heaven. But it has to do with your experience on earth, and you've got to be able to understand the difference between these two. Every believer is permanently set apart to God at the moment of salvation when they believe in Jesus Christ. That's what uh, uh, hagias, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, hagiosmos means. H a g i s i o s m o s. means to be set apart from God. And if you're a believer, you are permanently set apart to God. You are His child. You are royal family. Nothing can change that. It's a permanent thing. And God accomplished that in total. But experiential sanctification, some believers grow in grace and knowledge and are set apart by God for special rewards and blessings. Now, this isn't for every believer. In fact, most believers will never experience this type of sanctification because this depends on us. The first part, positional sanctification, doesn't have anything to do with work or effort on our part. It just has to do with faith in Christ. The second one thing has every Our part Jesus Christ, our real effort. Where the first one because they don't really know what life is. We're going to do some PowerPoints. I was surprised. Here's one of them that is makes some distinctions. Therefore. You have positional sanctity in your life. positional sanctity your is not something that are very high. They, they can't carry a lot but purpose. If not, one not experientially sanctified. It's a negative thing. I church, we have to the week as opposed to just on Sunday. Right? They're up to 100% of their whole, uh, their whole uh, congregation, but... Uh, Twenty percent of the ones that show up on Sunday show up during the weekday. Eighty percent don't. Now, that in itself will tell you something. I'm talking about consistency. Now, I don't want anybody to get their feelings hurt. Somebody, I know there's people that are going to hear this on the Internet. There's people that's going to have DVDs and tapes. I don't keep a record. People aren't here, especially in this church. We can't go around with our head and our nose in the air well, I go on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays, and I'm just as very consistent. To no, because you don't know whether those people are getting it or not. And it's none of your business. They may See, because Country Bible Church is, guess what? It's in the country. And most of our members live a distance away. And it's impractical. Some of them couldn't even come if they wanted to. And some of them do want to. Some of them drive over an hour to get here. And they have, uh, they have priorities. They have to take care of their family. They have uh, jobs and, and careers and all these types of things. But you can still be consistent and get the Word because we have the Internet, we have DVDs, we have ways to get it. And people that can't make it here, you don't want to go up there and say, well, are you getting the tapes? It's not your business whether they're getting the tapes or not. That's between them and the Lord. So... We don't really know how many people are tuned in or eventually will get the message that you're getting right now. But what I'm telling you is in, a, in the standard thing, because I talk to pastors all the time. I go to conferences. I'm, we're always talking, gabbing, about such things. And the, and the such things is if you've got 20% of your Sunday crowd showing up during the week, well, that's about normal. I think we've got more than 20%. The way things are right now, we're probably hitting around 40% maybe. I don't know. But we're not trying to get a good grade here. I'm just trying to explain to you that when it comes to positional sanctification, consistency is not an issue. It's a one-shot thing. You believe in Jesus Christ and it puts in motion God and all the things He does for us. Over 40 things that God accomplishes for us, boom, instantly. But, you're still here. You're still breathing. I'm still breathing. God didn't take us off the earth as soon as we did this. As soon as we believed, we're still here. It's because he has a purpose. His purpose is for us. See if you can get this. I'm going to put in a question for him. What is this purpose for us? We're still here. And we saw it in our verse just a minute ago. It has to do with glory. God wants us. He loves us so much that He takes us slime balls and wants us to share the glory of His magnificent Son. That's why we're here. And you cannot be glorified with Christ if you are a spiritual ignoramus. If you are not consistent in taking in the Word, forget glory, you're going to be gobbled up by the world. Satan is going to throw so many deceptions and lies to you and you're going to be so chewed up by the details of life because you don't have time for God. You can't hit priorities. See, your life should be full of priorities and the number one priority in your life should not be your spouse. It should not be your children. Your number one priority in life should be who? It should be God. And if it's not your number one priority, here's the cruel, well, it's not cruel, it's just just. It's just that this happened. If God is not your number one priority and you're over here putting your children, so many times it's the children. The children are the number one priority in the, in the, in the home. And that's wrong anyway. Children should not come before your spouse but children many times do, and the the parents are spending all this time trying to get close to their children, to do for their children, and it's going to be a disaster because they don't have the mechanics. They don't have the doctrine. All the things that happen, all the issues they have to deal with, they don't have faith rest. They don't know about rebound. They're wondering, uh, am I going to heaven or not? Uh, They are spiritual babies, and they cannot... Maintain a high-quality relationship with their children because you got to have the relationship with God first. And it's not just with children; it's with anyone. How about unconditional love? How about structure in the in the home, authority? All these issues. If you don't have your relationship with God right, and you don't have doctrine, you're not consistent. Then forget having relationship, good rich relationships with others. You're going to be full of self-pity, anger, bitterness, and confusion. Now, the reason I went off on that little diatribe is because we're, we're seeing that the <coughs> on, the, on the positional sanctification, uh, it is one decision. That's it. Don't need consistency for that. Consistency is absolutely imperative when we're talking about the experiential type. Of sanctification, For all believers, uh, for some, you understand that positional is through faith in Christ and with uh, experiential sanctification, you receive that through spiritual maturity. And what does it take to be spiritually mature? Consistency in taking in the Word. That's just the way it is. I didn't design it. it is not, but you know for yourself, or at least you should know, if you want to take a little doctrinal sabbatical. You know, I've been in doctrine all these years, I pretty well got it down. I think I'll just coast for a while. I'm gonna get involved and in, uh I'm gonna play the cello. And this is gonna be my life's desire and priority for oh, about six months. I'm gonna learn to play the cello. Okay, you can do that. And you're not gonna you're not gonna to go to class because you've been there enough you pretty well got it all down and you want to take a little sabbatical what's going to happen is that playing the cello going to be fulfilling to you let me tell you within a month you're going to probably tear that cello up throw it out the door you're going to attack the teacher everybody around you is going to be you're going to be losing friends because you're angry you're bitter the whole world's against you you're full of self pity and nobody wants to talk to you because all you want to do is complain that's what happens if you don't have the consistency. How did this turn into consistency anyway? I didn't plan to talk about consistency that much, but that's what it takes. If you want to be experientially sanctified, and do you, do you want to be experientially sanctified? Because it's up to you. It's there. If you want to be experientially sanctified, set apart for special, unbelievable, wonderful blessings that the mediocre believer does not have, if you want that, it's there. It's yours for the taking. But it's not a one-shot decision. You weren't experientially sanctified when you believed in Christ, and it's going to—it's t- over the long haul. But I can tell you, it is worth it. You can be a negative believer and still be positionally sanctified. Not so if you are. Seeking to be experientially sanctified. I'm tired of saying sanctified. I need to, uh, when I'm reading this list, I don't want to say sanctified every time. So I'm going to say on the left and right, okay? Is that all right with y'all? Okay, because I'm sure you're here to, if he says sanctified one more time, I'm on a screen. I don't want you to get to that state. I want you to stay plugged in. So, on the left side, you have those who are on the left side, are going to be inhabiting heaven. Everyone is going to be in heaven who believes in Jesus Christ. That is a done deal. Now, you believe that. The most important thing is to know that you're going to be there. And that leaves out most people. But every believer is going to inhabit heaven. But there's a difference between inhabiting heaven and inheriting heaven. You know all about that. I want to be an inheritor. And we're talking about all eternity. And we're talking about rights, privileges, opportunities, things that are so fantastic. The Bible says, look, I cannot even begin to put into your brain how wonderful it's going to be. And see, I think that's kind of a deterrent to the people because I've known people. I have people who have told me, I don't know what the big deal about getting doctrine is. I'm going to be in heaven. Heaven's a wonderful place. So what's the big deal? And I'm thinking, you don't get it. Before you were born physically, if someone could come into wherever you were going to be, (laughs) if someone could talk to you, I know this is hypothetical, it's impossible, but if somebody could talk to you and say, hey, you're going to be born in nine months. And I'm going to give you some choices right now that you can make that's going to determine where you're going to be born, to whom you're going to be born, what you're going to look like, what your intelligent level is going to be, what your personality will be like. You can choose right now, make decisions that's going to affect that. Now, are you interested? How many would say, I don't think so, no. It's okay if I'm born in the slums, if I'm in a... Uh, in the jungles of New Guinea, or if, I'm, if, I'm, if my mother is a crackhead and my daddy is gone, that's okay. I, it didn't matter to me as opposed to having real caring parents. Of course, you would be very interested in that, wouldn't you? But so many believers, they say, Heaven's going to be a good place. I'm going to be there. That's all I need. It's like saying, Okay, God, I'm a believer. I understand etern- eternal security. I tell you what, I'll see you in heaven in the meantime, bug off. That's the attitude of so many believers. Even the ones that have eternal security. I want to be an inheritor. Don't you? I want to get into the ritzy country clubs. I think there are. I can't. Don't tell me to look at a verse. But I think there are going to be places in heaven. Well, I'm sure of this. That not every believer is going to be able to attend. There's going to be parties. There's going to be galas. There's going to be places. Only the mature are going to be able to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. Now, you might say, well, what's the big deal? I'm not a big on fruit anyway. <coughs> Have you ever seen a tree that, that each month has a different fruit? of life is that way. I don't know what it tastes like, but there's a lot more significance than just, well, I think it will have an apple this time and I'll have an orange next time, (coughs) maybe a banana each month. Isn't that something? These are so significant, and yet I think one reason that the Bible's language doesn't expand upon those all that much is because we can't understand it. Furthermore, if we could, we'd probably be committing, Harry, Carrie, let's go. I love to talk about heaven. You know, when Carrie's mother died, before she died, she asked me, she said, I want you to do my funeral. And she said, one thing that I want to make sure that you do. She said, I don't want you to to make it somber. She said, I want you to talk about heaven the whole time. And I can remember studying When I first started tonight, I was talking about this, uh, who's thinking about heaven anymore? We should be heaven thinkers. We should be looking for our God coming from heaven. I have something that's so neat. I was saving it for when I got to sanctification. It has to do with uh, the Hebrew wedding, and I don't have time to go into it. I'm sorry, we're nearly out of time. (laughs) But... (coughs) I think if, if we had a glimpse of how wonderful it is, there would literally be people, well, there's people doing it anyway already. They commit suicide. And there are some people who think if you commit suicide, you're going to hell for sure. You know who thinks that? Catholics think that. You know why? Because they can't get to Mass and, and <coughs> confess their sins because they're dead. And you've got to be able to go to Mass, get the Confession and all that in order to cover that. Anyway, let me get through this list. I'm just about done. I know it's been kind of helter-skelter tonight, but sometimes that's the way it is. Uh, Sometimes we'll stay right by the numbers, and that's fine. I mean, we need to stay by the numbers sometimes, and sometimes we need to just grab doctrines from all over the place, and let's just talk about it. Let's just focus on all these wonderful doctrines and what God has for us. People are so immersed in their problems and their routines and all the problems. And God said, hey, this is short. This this, this is just so temporary. And I'm talking about eternity. Jesus Christ in John uh, 14, 1 through 3 is talking about, hey, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. And I'm going to build a, a, a place for you. And how often do you think about that? When was the last time that you just thought, man, I sure wish Christ would come? As things are happening in our nation, how can you not think that? I was watching the news tonight and I thought, if I didn't have doctrine, I would be scared out of my gourd. It said, we have one month. By May the 15th, the nation is going to be broke and we're going to default unless they do something. And they were saying things I never thought I'd hear over the air. They said military benefits won't be paid. Social Security won't be paid. All these things are not going to happen unless something is done. And I know what they're going to do. I'm not a prophet, but uh, they're already talking about infusing another $900 billion into the economy in order to stay afloat. Well, how many times can you do that? How worthless can the dollar be? I said I was going to finish this. Uh, Let me do it real quick here. Oop, here we go. Okay, on the left no rewards, on the right rewards, logistical grace. They all have logistical grace. You don't have to be consistent, and God's still going to take care of the logistics, food, clothing, shelter, transportation, all that. That is, as long as you work, you can't sit on the porch rocking and say, Okay, God, I'm ready for my check. Logistic grace as opposed to super grace. Most believers don't even know what super grace is. Talk about super grace to most people. Surpassing grace. Anything. About a, an extra measure and they're looking like uh, it's not computing. They don't know about it. How can you be motivated to get the superior grace if you don't even know about it? You see how important knowledge is? And you can't have that knowledge if you're not consistent. We have spiritual babies on the left, spiritual adults on the right, enemy of God on the left, friend of God on the right, and this is the one that people, what is this doing? (laughs) All right. I guess that's the end of it down here. On the left, right here, loser. Over here, winner. I have had people leave this church. And you know why? They were insulted that I said a believer could be a loser. Now, that's a loser believer who says that. They were so used to being patted on the head. Oh, boy, you're a great believer. You know, we're just really impressed with you. No, we're slime balls. Everything is about God and Jesus Christ. And if you are not consistent, if you are not experientially sanctified, you are a loser. And most losers don't know that they're losers. It's not their fault. It's everybody else's fault. If they run out of people, well, it's God's fault. That's a loser mentality. You think losers are anticipating and wanting Christ to come back? The Bible says if you're not anticipating Christ to come back, you're not going to get a particular war designed especially for that. How can you be anxious for Christ coming back if you don't even know what the rapture is? You don't know when He's coming. You're just hoping, well, I hope I'll get there. Ask most believers, are you saved? Well, I hope so. Well, you're a loser. Don't you want to be a winner? You're already a winner in the sense that you're in Christ as a believer. But you're a loser in the sense that that's all you have. Now, that's everything. That's so important. But there's so much more. If you're not experientially sanctified, if you're not on track, to be experientially sanctified. There's so much that you're going to lose out on. And I got an eight with two zeros up there on the clock. And this thing is going haywire, so I guess I better stop. Okay. Next time, if I forget, I hope you will remind me about the analogy between sanctification and the Hebrew wedding. It is really neat. Maybe we can start there next time. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for who and what you are and the opportunities and the potential that you have made available to us is astounding. How can we be so arrogant and so stupid as to cast it off as if it is nothing and be so concerned about the worldly affairs? We pray that you will help us all to be more heavenly-minded. After all, that is where our citizenship is. That we will look forward to our God and our King, Jesus Christ, returning so that we can be with Him. We pray this in His name. Amen.